0: Alrighty, brethren, let's go ahead and get started. I'm sure that there's going to be a few more people coming in, but uh, they can pick up uh, where we're at uh, when they arrive. So uh, before we begin, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would once again thank you for your goodness to each one of us. And Lord, we thank you that this is your day. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together as your people to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you would guide and direct our time together even now. We pray that as your word is uh, preached out front, that you would richly bless uh, the time of our brethren who will be there first thing this morning. And we pray for us, Lord, back here. We would ask, Lord, that again, as we open your word, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would uh, help us to understand the things that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for even the snow when we were reminded of your word when it says that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Lord, we thank you for all that our Savior has accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you that that righteousness has been imputed to our account. Unworthy as we are, we thank you, our Father, for your grace. And Lord, we pray that as we look together at this passage, that you would guide and direct our time together. May everything that we do and say uh, be done for your honor and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Alrighty, brethren, in our study of the book of Galatians, we come this morning to Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. So if I could have you turn with me there in your copies of the scripture. That is going to be the passage that we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And here the Apostle Paul writes, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. All who want to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Uh, we've seen so far in our study in the book of Galatians, uh, especially from chapters 1 and verse 6 until now, that the Apostle Paul has remained steadfastly focused on the purpose for which he is writing to these believers. And as we will see this morning, the end of this epistle carries with it the same weight of urgency and seriousness and righteous indignation that the rest of it does. He hasn't let up for one second as we've gone through uh, this study here in the book. Back in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3, he commended his readers to the grace of God. And as he did this, he said, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you look all the way to the end of this book, uh, the same thing he says in the last verse of chapter 6. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. And in between, however, he devotes himself to express his deep concern for the spiritual well-being of those to whom he is writing. And that is the reason why we do not find in the book of Galatians many of the more personal communications that we find in the other books. The other books we see frequently, especially toward the very end, salutations are given to various individuals, little personal anecdotes are given. But here in the book of Galatians, we do not find that. And the letter, as we've studied through it over the course of the past few months, was prompted by the heretical teachings of the Judaizers who were teaching the false man-made gospel of salvation by works and the necessity of abiding under the government of the law. He summarized what these false teachers were doing in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7 when he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not just another account, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so he calls this false teaching a different gospel and a distortion of the gospel of Christ. Their gospel focused on the law. It focused on works. It focused on the flesh. It was a gospel completely contrary to that which Paul had originally ministered to these people when he first came to the city of Galatia. And what Paul preached was the true gospel, A gospel that underscored the truth that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And as a result, we as believers walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That's the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached when he first came to them. Well, the fact of the matter is that these two approaches to salvation are the only two that exist or have ever existed throughout the course of human history. The truth that genuine Christianity embraces focuses on grace, faith, and walking according to the Spirit. Scripture teaches clearly that God's way of salvation is the way of divine accomplishment. It is the way of grace through faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the enabling and sustaining power of God the Holy Spirit. All other ways are the ways of human achievement. All other world religions, when you boil them all down and you strip away all of the packaging that they have, at their very core, they are all the same. They all believe in a salvation that is based upon works righteousness. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verses 13 through 14, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life. And then he says that there are few who find it. To the natural man, the biblical gospel is foolishness and unattractive, and that is why so many are on the broad road that leads to destruction. But to the few, by the grace of God, genuinely believe it to be true, it is indeed the power of God unto salvation. Now, as we come to our text this morning, verse 11 through the end of the chapter is Paul's parting salvo, if you will, against the Judaizers. Up to this point, he has been exposing and condemning the error of their false teaching. But in the verses before us now, the Apostle Paul transitions into focusing or exposing and condemning the motives behind their false teaching. So up to this point, it has been all about what they've been teaching And now, as Paul picks this up, he's going to continue to the end by speaking about their motives. Why are these people teaching the things that they are teaching? Now, before he exposes their ungodly motives, Paul, in verse 11, gives some insight into his own motives for preaching to these people the true gospel of divine grace and for writing this particular letter to them. He says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now this statement has been the subject of much debate among biblical scholars over the years. And since Paul himself does not explain exactly what he means here, it's kind of difficult to be perfectly dogmatic on the issue. As always, however, interpreting in the, in the context of what he has already said and what he is about to say is the most responsible way to try to come to a conclusion as to what it is that he's speaking about. In the preceding verses, Paul admonishes these believers to do good. We saw that last week. Clark went over these passages with us. In verses 9 and 10, he said, Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then, as we will see later on this morning in our Sunday school class, He's going to continue on in verses 12 and 13 by serving warning to the Galatians concerning the ungodly motives of the Judaizers. And so it would be reasonable for us to expect that this phrase that he includes in here in verse 11 has something to do with either both of these subjects or one or the other. And so he begins this statement with the words, see with what large letters. Now, some commentators have concluded that this statement refers to the length of the letter itself. Uh, he's referring to, the, to all that he's written. He's looking back on, he's looked back on all that he's written and he's saying, I've written a large letter unto you. Uh, Tyndale, in his translation of the New Testament, translated these words, Behold how large a letter I have written unto you, singular. Uh, The King James Version, if uh, some of you may have that here, uh, says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you. Again, that's singular. And then in the Darby Translation, Darby translates this phrase as, See how long a letter I have written to you. Now, these three translations would seem to indicate that Paul is here referring to the length of the epistle more than the character, its the characters itself, as the phrase that is used in each of these examples is in the singular rather than the plural form. Most other translations, however, including, interestingly enough, the, King, the New King James Version, renders this phrase in the plural form, placing the emphasis on the characters rather than the whole of the letter itself. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Well, the latter part of the Greek phrase that is used here literally means in in or with, which seems to place more emphasis on the characters rather than the letter itself. And in addition to that, the word translated large in each of these examples actually means large or great in the original, and seems to point once again to the character characters themselves and the relative size of them. It would appear, then, that for one reason or another, the apostle is purposefully drawing attention to the size of the characters in the writing of the letter. Now, at this point, I would say in defense of Darby and Tyndale and uh, the translators of the King James Version, the latter part of this phrase rightly points to the fact that in all likelihood, the apostle Paul wrote the entire book with his own hand. And the reason why that is a common understanding is because he uses here in this ver- verse the Greek word grapho, which means I am writing. And it is used here in the sense that refers back to what already has been written rather than what he is writing right now and what he is about to write. Now, this was unusual for the Apostle Paul. Normally, he dictated his letters to a scribe who did the actual writing, and then it was his custom at the end to personally write a salutation in his own handwriting. To the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 8, he does exactly the same thing. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And then to the Thessalonians, he wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The reason why Paul did this is stated very clearly here in this second letter to the church in Thessalonica. He did it in order to prove that the letter actually came from him. During the time of the early church, it was common for forged documents to be circulated in the name of the apostles in order to try to gain credibility with the hearers. Paul refers to this deceptive practice in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2 where he cautions them that they were not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, what he's referring to here is that there were letters circulated throughout the churches, and they were telling these believers that the day of the Lord had already come. And so, that was unsettling people. If the Lord has already come, why am I still here? Uh, And so, Paul cautions them. He said, There are people who are doing this, circulating letters, seeming to be coming from us to the effect that the day day of the Lord has come. And so it was Paul's common practice to dictate his letters to a scribe who would write what was said, and then to authenticate this letter at the end, he would personally write a short salutation. If we would sit down at our word processor and type out a letter to somebody... Uh, we would then at the very end, what would we do? We would sign our signature, okay? This is to verify that this letter is coming from me. You might not be able to tell it was coming from me if it's typed out, but you know that it was coming from me because I personally put my signature on it. And that's basically was the norm for the Apostle Paul. He would dictate his letters to somebody else. They would write it down. And then as they were completing it, Paul would take a pen, and he would write a simple salutation at the end to confirm to those who, they were, who, who were reading that particular letter that it was actually coming from him. But that doesn't appear to be the case in the letter to the Galatians. Every indication points to the fact that Paul personally wrote this entire epistle with his own hand. Now, why would he place emphasis here on the size of the letter characters and the fact that he had written this letter with his own hand? That's kind of a, a maybe a, a weird thing we might think for him to do, especially here in the context. Well, there are a few possibilities. And the first one is this. Paul may have suffered from a medical-related issue having to do with his eyesight, may very well be possible that the Apostle Paul struggled with a medical-related issue having to do with his eyesight. In our study back in Galatians chapter 4, we saw in verse 13 that Paul made reference to a bodily illness or an infirmity in the flesh that he personally was dealing with when he first arrived in Galatia. And that infirmity, it appears, had to do with his eyes or his eyesight— If Paul's thorn in the flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 involved some kind of an eye disease, then it would make perfect sense that Paul wrote in large letters in order to be able to see what it was that he was writing. So that's that's the first possibility as to why he mentions that here. He may have suffered from a medical-related issue having to do with his eyesight. But secondly, the second possibility is that large letters may also have been used by the Apostle Paul for emphasis. Large letters may have been used by the Apostle Paul for emphasis. Now, sometimes uh, we might sit down, and if we would sit down and write a letter, something that we really want to drive home or something that is at the central point of our letter, we may change what we do from the rest of the letter we may go ahead and underline it we may go ahead and increase the size of the font we may go ahead and write in capital letters everything i want you to i want to draw your attention to what it is that i'm saying it's very very important and it could very well be that the apostle paul uh, wrote in large letters in order to to be to emphasize something at this time it was common under certain circumstances to use what were known as Greek uncials when writing. This type of writing is referred to as uncial writing, or uncial script. This kind of writing was characterized by large, unconnected letters that could easily be seen. They were usually used as a means to draw one's attention to what it was that was written. This kind of lettering was most often used if you were going out into public and you were going to post a public notice. Normally, you would use uncial writing. This kind of lettering was most often used in that way, if you wanted to post something in public. Most scribes of the day wrote in cursive, not only because it was more attractive to read, but also because it used less ink, and it was a little bit more economical. Uh, to do that. Since this was the case, Paul may very well have written this letter in large, bold, unconnected lettering as a means to emphasize the importance of what it was that he was writing, and was not so concerned necessarily about form. John MacArthur makes an interesting observation at this point when he says, perhaps by the unattractive uncials, Paul was expressing a picture that serves purposely to contrast his priorities with those of the Judaizers, who, like the scribes and Pharisees they emulated, were primarily concerned with appearance, with making a good showing in the flesh. So it may very well be that that was the purpose of the Apostle Paul, to differentiate even in his writings the difference between him and the Judaizers. Well, in considering both of these possibilities, that Paul wrote in large letters due to a physical infirmity that he had, and or he wrote this way for emphasis, it may very well be that he pointed this fact out to the Galatians to underscore the difference between his own motives and those of the Judaizers. When the Apostle Paul first came to Galatia, he was not about impressing them with great oratorical skill, scholastic achievements, personal giftedness, and shallow superficial formality. And he reminded them of the fact that they had accepted the clear, simple preaching of the gospel with gladness, in spite of his unattractive appearance." In other words, what Paul was saying was this, because of my poor eyesight, you know how hard it is for me to write with my own hand, and I am purposefully and personally writing this entire letter to you in these large letters to emphasize the importance and urgency of the issue at hand. Unlike the false teachers, I am deeply concerned about your spiritual well-being. Therefore, behold, with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. From this statement, Paul now moves on in verses 12 and 13 to condemn the motives of these false teachers for teaching their legalistic perversion of the gospel of Christ. They had three primary motives for doing what they were doing and teaching what they were teaching. And the Apostle Paul here in verses 12 and 13 lays these motives very clearly out for them. First of all, the Apostle apostle underscores the fact that the Judaizers were motivated by religious pride. The Judaizers were motivated by religious pride. And Paul points this out in the very first part of chapter 12. He says, all who want to make a good showing in the flesh, try to to compel you to be circumcised. He says here very clearly what their motive was. They desired to make a good showing in the flesh. These people had no desire to please God by means of a genuine inward righteousness. Rather, all that they were interested in was impressing men through the means of outward legalism. That was what they were all about. It was in regard to such spiritual pride that the Lord Jesus warned his hearers about repeatedly in the Gospels. In Luke 18 in verses 9 through 14, Jesus spoke a parable intended specifically for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous... And treated others with contempt. He said two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even so much as lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Apostle Paul himself warned the believers in Colossae about these same kind of arrogant and proud religious leaders. He wrote to them in Colossians 2 and verse 8, "'See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ.'" The human traditions and elemental spirits of the world refer not only to the ceremonial laws and the rituals under the old covenant, but to any and all external religious activities that are, as he says, not according to Christ. Such religious activities originate in and exalt the flesh rather than originating in the spirit and exalting God. Liturgies, rituals, and other religious acts and observances that are prescribed by men not only do not possess value in opposing the flesh, they are many times produced by the flesh for the sole intent of pleasing the flesh." In other words, the flesh takes great gratification in making displays of religious devotion that require absolutely no heart righteousness or dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the most ungodly person is fully capable of practicing these these things with skill and artificial sincerity." We look around us at many other religions, people who are very, very religious. They are very skillful at what they do. But it is not something that comes from a, a heart righteousness or dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is dependent upon the flesh. And no religion that relies on such things has any part in Christ. No act or ritual or ceremony that anyone might perform can add any value whatsoever to the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished himself on Calvary's cross. It adds no value whatsoever. What Christ accomplished is absolutely perfect and in every way complete. There is nothing that we can possibly add to it. When our Lord Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished, It was finished. There was absolutely nothing else that needed to be done. All that was required to secure our salvation, the Lord Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. There was nothing left to do. And Isaiah makes this truth abundantly clear when he wrote that God will see of the travail of Christ's soul and what? He will be satisfied. And since God is satisfied with the redemptive work of Christ, who do we think that we are if we believe that we could in any way add anything to it? Such a belief is rooted in utter pride and utter arrogancy. And this is exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. These Judaizers were motivated by religious pride. Their desire was to make a good showing in the flesh. That is what, why they were doing what they were doing. And so Paul points out here then, first of all, as far as the motives of these Judaizers, that their first, mo- that their first motive was driven by religious pride. But secondly, I want us to note this morning, and the Apostle Paul brings this out, The Judaizers were not only motivated by religious pride, but they were also motivated by cowardice. They were motivated by cowardice. This point is brought out by Paul in the end of verse 12. He says, All who want to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. And then he says this, Simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This is the second motion uh, motivation, so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Their advocation of legalism not only stroked their fleshly egos, but they also did it to protect their own lives and their material welfare. That was the motive behind what they were doing. These people were not willing to suffer for the sake of following the person of Christ. They understood very well the truth that Paul reminded Timothy of, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Judaizers were perfectly happy, to use the name of Christ. They were content to attend church on a regular basis and to go through all of the motions that everybody else was doing every time that the congregation met together. The point of contention in reality to them was what the cross of Christ truly represented. That was the issue in their mind. It was an offensive symbol not only to them but to all of the world around them. From the first century until now, the universal symbol of Christianity is the cross. Under the Romans, crucifixion was not only a cruel and agonizing means of execution, it was also meant to humiliate and to degrade the one that was crucified. This means of execution was usually reserved for enemies of the state and it was carried out publicly in order to deter others from committing similar crimes. The very symbol that represented a horrible means of death became for Christians a precious symbol of life because of the fact that Christ died upon a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to to save them from sin and the penalty of sin, which was death. The most dreadful expression of man's hatred was used by God to express his infinite love toward hell-deserving sinners. For the Christian, the cross does not merely refer to a wooden structure, a means of execution on which Christ died. Rather, the cross represents the entire redemptive work of God that Christ's death on the cross accomplished for sinners. And as a consequence, the cross is offensive to the unregenerate person because it allows no place for human pride, status, or achievement. The cross has always been and always will be an offense to all who are trusting in their own good works in order to save them. The preaching of the cross, as Paul stated to the Corinthians, is a stumbling block to the Jews, And to the Gentiles, it is utter foolishness. To such people, the cross is not an object of neutrality. All persons, religious or not, nominally Christian or not, who deny or reject the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for the sins of men are referred to by the Apostle Paul as the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, who mine, who's with minds set on earthly things. And thus the Judaizers, even though they themselves professed to be Christians, they continued to trust in themselves and had no genuine allegiance to the cross of Christ. They hope that adherence to outward forms such as circumcision would minimize offense to other Jews and to other Gentiles and therefore protect themselves from persecution. Well, the reality is that the world has no problem with legalists, do they? I believe that uh, Pastor Bill mentioned that last week in the sermon. The world has no problem with legalists. In fact, the devil himself has no problem with them at all either. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The preaching of the cross absolutely undercuts every human system of works righteousness, and that is why it is offensive and always results in persecution directed to those who have embraced and preach it. When Peter and the apostles preached the cross in Jerusalem, we are told in Acts chapter 5 and verses 29 through 33 that the Jewish leaders were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. That was the response of the religious leaders toward Peter and the apostles as they preached the gospel. And the same has been true throughout the course of church history. Christians have suffered unspeakable atrocities against themselves simply for believing in and proclaiming to others the power of the cross. The Judaizers wanted no part of such suffering. They had no genuine love for Christ, no desire to take up the cross and follow him. Their hearts were like the rocky soil upon which the good seed fell. They initially showed promising signs of life in the beginning, but when persecution came along, they were willing in a moment to abandon the truth that they originally professed to believe. But not only then were the Judaizers motivated by religious pride and cowardice, But lastly, let us note from the words of the Apostle Paul here, they were also motivated by hypocrisy. They were motivated by hypocrisy. Paul points this out in verse 13 when he says, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Hypocrisy and cowardice are traits that are basically inseparable from one another. And the reason why is that if you are not afraid of what other people might say to you, do to you, or think about you, then you would have no reason to pretend to be something that you're not. And so cowardice and hypocrisy are two things that are very closely tied together. Paul, here, Paul says here that these false teachers who were circumcised didn't even try to live up to the standards of the Mosaic law themselves, much less by the power of the Holy Spirit. Their religion was a pure sham, and it was put on for the benefit of others. Everything that they did and said was designed to convert others to their perverted form of the gospel, which was symbolized by circumcision. Paul says here, they desire to have you circumcised, Paul writes, in order that what? They may boast in your flesh. Even though they themselves never kept it, the Judaizers worked feverishly to win converts to the law so that they could brag about how effective they were themselves in gaining proselytes. Again, concerning the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus warned his followers in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. The great burden that the scribes and Pharisees placed on the shoulders of men was the unbearable burden of salvation by works. And because of their hypocrisy, they were not burdened by it themselves. But to the conscientious Jew, a burden such as this was unspeakably frustrating and hopeless. He was constantly under the weighty demands of the law, tradition, and ceremony, and there was no possible way that he could ever keep them. The world loves to keep such people under bondage. They delight to bring others under, the sa- under their list of rules and regulations when they themselves refuse to be governed by them. In John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian encountered a man by the name of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. This happened a little earlier on in the story. He encounters this man named Mr. Worldly Wiseman. He's walking on the path toward the celestial city. Worldly Wiseman meets him, and so they have a conversation, and Worldly Wiseman basically points him off the path, tells him to go to the city that's called Morality, and there he's going to find a man by the name of Mr. Legality, and he's the one who's going to help him. And as he was on the way to the city of Morality to find Mr. Legality, he was met by Evangelist. And Bunyan says that as Evangelist drew near to him, he looked upon him with a severe and dreadful countenance, such as when you were a little kid, You did something wrong, you knew it, you knew that look that dad gave you, that I am in deep weeds. So evangelist simply asks him the question, what are you doing here, Christian? And Bunyan says that in response to that answer, he gave no response. There was nothing that he could say to defend what he had done. And so Bunyan says that evangelist then said to Christian these words, and these words apply Perfectly to what the Apostle Paul says here in our text. He says to him, The man that met you is one worldly wise man, and rightly is he so called, partly because he savors only the doctrine of this world, therefore he always goes to the town of morality to church, and partly because he loves that doctrine best, for it saves him from the cross. And because he is of this carnal temper, he seeks to pervert your ways, though right. There are three things in this man's counsel that you must utterly abhor. And this is evangelist's counsel to Christian. First of all, his turning you out of the way. That's the first thing that you are to abhor. Secondly, his laboring to render the cross odious to you. That's the second thing that you must abhor. And thirdly, you must abhor the fact that he set your feet in that way that leads to the administration of death. Those are the things that you are to abhor. And when Evangelist had finished speaking, Bunyan tells us that Christian cursed the time in which he met Mr. Worldly Wiseman, calling himself a thousand fools for listening to his counsel. That was the purpose for the Apostle Paul writing the people at Galatia, saying, you've listened to Mr. Worldly Wiseman. He's caused you to go off the path into another path, to the city of morality, to spend time with Mr. Legality. And so Evangelist comes along, points these things out to him, and by the grace of God, Christian is brought back on the right path toward the celestial city. How many have there been who have not been so fortunate? Thanks be to God for men like Evangelist and the Apostle Paul, who have remained steadfast in their love and proclamation of the truth, and who are not afraid to confront error and those who would seek to deceive others by such error in order to see precious souls restored to the right path that leads to life. Well, brethren, with that, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that you have given uh, men like evangelists and like the Apostle Paul who are concerned about the well-being, the spiritual well-being of never-dying souls. And Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us your word And we thank you for these reminders that you have communicated by your Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Uh, Lord, we pray that we might take these things to heart. Father, we thank you that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished for all good works. Father, we pray that you would accomplish whatever purpose you would have in each one of our lives this morning as we consider these things. Uh, Glorify your name in our coming time together of discussion. Lord, we pray that in all that is said and done, that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.